This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker and this is episode 32. Hi guys, so my guest this week is writer and journalist John Ronson, who I kind of want to call John Actual Ronson. I'm pretty sure you'll have already come across his work somewhere. So his books include The Men Who Stare at Goats, The Psychopath Test, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and Frank, and some of those have already been made into successful movies. His most recent film credit is Oakja, I think I'm saying that right, which came out earlier this year to lots of adoration and critical acclaim, and it was fully deserved. His most recent venture is The Butterfly Effect, which is a podcast series looking at the way the internet has revolutionised one very specific industry and the lives of a lot of very normal people along the way. And we talk about that a little bit more in today's episode. So I'm kind of a huge fan of his work, which might be why I sound a little bit like a simpering fangirl during our podcast conversation. So please bear with me. I hope you're not cringing for me too much. But watching John's work evolve over the last few years, I've just really been struck by the role that the digital world has had to play in all of it and how he seems to be really at home in this sort of digital online world that we all inhabit. It's interesting that when I put that to him when we talk, it kind of doesn't sound like it's a conscious decision he's been making, but I feel like it's been a really wise step for future-proofing his work to withstand this kind of digital evolution that's happening and so we touch upon all of that and lots more in our conversation. So I feel like there's kind of lots of interesting stuff in in The Butterfly Effect and in Shamed obviously but also in your work like I feel like and maybe I've got the wrong impression here but it seems like you've been kind of an early adopter of a lot of the technology. Yeah you know I remember in about 2009 or 2010 two of my friends Graham Linehan and Rebecca Watson both saying to me, like, you've got to get onto this thing called Twitter. Like, you know, the internet may be falling apart, but Twitter's amazing. Twitter in, On Twitter, everybody's nice to each other. <laughs> and Jesus, what the fuck happened there? Um, <laughs> but I remember Graham Linehan saying to me, Twitter's like, you know, if the internet is black magic, Twitter's like white magic. Um, but of course, you know, didn't turn out that way. But it was like that back in about 2010. I was an early adopter, I was a Twitter early adopter, I'd say. You have a Tumblr as well, is that, you didn't start that yourself, did someone do that for you? Uh, no, the, I, I started it myself. The only reason why is because my webmaster is, um, I would say, an elusive gentleman. <laughs> if I want something updated, I, I tend to have to email him about five times. He makes crop circles. Um, he goes around <laughs> the world. He's called John Lundberg. He goes around the world making crop circles for a living. So, like, if you see a crop circle in an ad, you know, that's John. Um, so, as a result, most of his life is spent, like, in wheat fields with... with No 3G. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, I was doing all of these live shows, so I needed, like, like I couldn't just wait for John to get out of the field. So, so I set up a Tumblr and John to link it to my website. So, you know, if I needed to update something quickly, I could just do it myself. That, that's the only reason why I, why I did that. I feel like that requires a degree of technology, though, because I've tried to put a theme onto Tumblr and just was like, this is harder than having a website. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I didn't really know what to do because I'd never had a blog. So like, I, I chose Tumblr quite randomly. I just thought, 
okay, so, you know, I mean, there's probably easier. I mean, I'm sure there's ease. In fact, you know, I think John Lundberg, who has been my webmaster for like 19 years, uh, would probably be relieved if I said to him, I'm going to do it myself from now on. So I don't know, should I, should I do like a Squarespace page? Is that, is that easy? Probably, that's super easy. But Tumblr's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of cool that you have a Tumblr because it's a bit more... Uh, it's like the young crowd. It's back to you, millennials. Right. Well, I honestly didn't know. Like, I didn't know the Tumblr reputation. Um, and, uh, you know, it was literally just, I want something easy that I can just update without any hassle. And in fact, Tumblr's a bit of a pain in the ass, you know. The the, the app is difficult. And um, so maybe maybe it's time for me to switch to something like Squarespace. Jump, jump on Squarespace. Yeah. The only one of these things I actively enjoy is, is Instagram. Like, like yeah. I like anything else but I like Instagram so because you you used to enjoy Twitter we all used to enjoy Twitter back in the rosy days but then you made that really deliberate yeah. leap over to Instagram as your kind of main platform do you want to tell the yes. story of why that happened oh well it was a it's a kind of horrific story so so I um because I you know was a kind of Twitter early adopter and then you know saw the kind of way it, it was morphing in from something idealistic to something kind of horrific in this, you know, animal farm type way, uh, in this kind of Orwellian way. I, I wrote a book about it. I wrote this book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which was, you know, about, you know, how we turned the utopia into a dystopia. And as a consequence, people who hadn't read the book, I've, I've got to say, like, you know, I, I don't believe anybody who attacked the book had actually read it because the book mm-hmm. is, a, is a measured and nuanced you know, and smart thing. But, you know, some people who decided that they didn't like the idea of the book then tried to, like, get me. So for much of 2015, I was, you know, being got. Um, People were, like, just looking for ways to bring me down. And, you know, it was horrible. It was horrible. It was horrible. And and, um, so I made the the conscious decision to... um, to leave Twitter. So I left for a while, moved to Instagram. And but I didn't like close down my Twitter account. Because there are some things I still really like about Twitter. I like the fact that it's really good for breaking news. I like that I can DM people and people can DM me. And it's good for like promoting your stuff. But but like Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, I uh, you know I, I couldn't be unselfconscious on Twitter anymore. I was like the kind of clothed Eve hiding behind a tree. So, so, I, so that's kind of where I am now on Twitter. I'm, I'm back, but I don't feel unselfconscious anymore. Whereas Instagram, people tend to be like nice to each other, right? Have you found that? Yeah, I think everybody finds that. It's this lovely, warm embrace of a community. Yeah. I wonder if you had any ideas about why that is. I've got, I've got some ideas. I think it's harder for things to go viral on, on Instagram. Mm. So it's harder for people to be kind of shamed. People tend not to read the comments quite as much. So it's a <laughs> brutal you tend to not really know. Um, and so there is, there's never a kind of momentum of brutality. And of course, the other reason is, is it's visual. So you're seeing humans being human. Um, you're seeing the, uh, you're seeing, you know, when you see a human being, it's harder, it's harder to be a drone strike operator, you know, blowing them up from afar. So it's good for humanism, I'd say. Yeah, because you've got pictures of people's kids there and they're 
the homes and things alongside. Yeah, exactly. So, people, you know, it's like, I suppose, you know, outrage. And, and I should caveat all of this by saying there's certain types of public shaming that I'm all in favour of. I, you know, I think what's happening at the moment with all the sexual predator stuff and, and what happened, you know, with the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville, you know, all of that stuff I have, you know, obviously, you know, I have no issue with at all. I, mean, I kind I, of hate that you have to have that caveat because... Yeah, it's obvious. obvious, right? Because only lunatics think that. I mean, Weinstein should carry on sexually harassing people and Nazis <laughs> should be, like rape cars and <laughs> protest. But you're right, people like, you know, feel they have to caveat. And now it's bad, isn't it? It's scary. Actually, like, Shamed as a Book kind of gave me, like, I would call it a healthy paralytic fear of the internet for a while in me. It is like, it's a, it's a kind of warning, that, you know, to, to um, well, it's a warning that this is this is turning this is turning rough and you know forewarned is forearmed I suppose as well as leaving Twitter has it changed what you share has it changed like have there been things that you would have put in a book or would have put on social media that you've kind of held back on um I should say that like you know lately I've been watching this is a kind of tangential answer but lately for work, for this work I'm doing, I've been watching a whole bunch of 80s and 90s family movies like um, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire and Three Men and a Baby. And uh, Nice work, nice. However, some of them are great. So Three Men and a Baby is great. Parenthood is great. But some of the other, and oh, I think uh, The Breakfast Club is great, but I think some of the others are like horrifically racist and like startlingly so, like... This is Doubtfire, Sixteen Candles. Sixteen Candles, this movie that, you know, everybody has like fond memories of from their childhood. There's a Chinese character and every time he appears, a gong goes off. And, oh my God. and, and when uh, when Americans see this Chinese character, they they like they back away looking startled. It's like it's stunning. And and you know, same goes to Miss for Mrs. Doubtfire. So the fact is, you know, that that in itself is a um, just shows that political correctness is is making you know great gains in society because yeah we wouldn't do you know movies wouldn't do that anymore they wouldn't get away with it so no so so the answer is like I have always been you know what you'd call a politically correct person like I don't want to tell like risque jokes so so it's not like I, I would have wanted to have done that stuff. But now I feel like I can't because the internet would get me. Sure. I'm trying to think if there's anything that I that I have that I would stop. I mean, on, on Twitter in general, I just don't share personal stuff anymore. I feel that it's just too dangerous. Wow. On on Instagram, I do, and I, and I think it's sort of fine. You know, in the very earliest days of Twitter, it was. It, well, I don't know. If, I don't know when. When did you get onto Twitter for the first time? I was private for a long time. It was probably about 2010, but I kept my account private for the longest time. Right. It was definitely, it was an unselfconscious place to be. People would admit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was so lovely. And it's such a shame that, that that's gone. Because that's a, a thing about the internet as a whole, I think. Like, I have a lot of conversations with women who, who say that they're actually their most authentic self online. And the people in their real lives get more of a kind of filtered version. Because it's free. Like, you can feel like you can start again and you can be your whole self and it feels safe to do that. And Twitter was the perfect place for that originally, wasn't it? It really was. Um, it really was. It was. And I, I, I think I kind of know what happened because I sort of watched it happen. So the first thing that happened was like newspapers, you know, places like The Guardian, for the longest time ignored Twitter. Thought, you know, it'll go, it's like a toy and it'll go away. 
So then it didn't go away. So what things like The Guardian did was they ran features called Who Are the 100 Best Tweeters? So <laughs> yeah, Stephen Fry. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Stephen Always Fry. Stephen Fry. <laughs> ran. And they, they, yeah, so they turned it into a hierarchy. So it became hierarchical. And what was so wonderful about it at the beginning was it was this you know, egalitarian, yeah. conscious place. You know, I, I love the fact that, you know, I followed some people who had a million followers, some people had 20 followers, and they all intermingled, you know, on my timeline, like um, like a Robert Altman movie, all of these <laughs> lives, you know, intermingling. And also people weren't being performative. Uh, they were just talking about anything. It was a place to not have to make a big effort. And, and, and then, you know, so then all these articles started, like, who were the 100 best tweeters? And then everybody suddenly felt that they had to try and make it onto that list of best tweeters. Um, so that was one thing. And then people started, and then people started tweeting. Like, I noticed people would tweet about me, like, I really like John Ronson's books, but on Twitter, he's so banal. Honestly, I thought that was, like, the point of Twitter, that it was a place where you could be banal, and, and it was fine. But then I had to, like, not be banal. And, and then, of course, Twitter was such a special place that, we realised we had some power. And I remember, um, you know, campaigns against LA Fitness, who refused to cancel the gym membership of a, of a pregnant woman who couldn't afford the membership. And so we, you know, we got them and they had to backtrack. And, and then we sort of fell in love with this new power, which was for good, you know. I mean, it was good that, that we made LA Fitness backtrack and you know, agreed to cancel the membership of, of a pregnant woman who couldn't afford the membership. And um, But then we fell in love with all of that stuff a little bit too much. And we started mm. getting people who kind of didn't deserve it. Like, sort of, I guess most famously, and I write about her in my public training book, uh, Justine Sacco, who just, you know, made this misconstrued liberal joke and was, you know, utterly torn to shreds, like dismantled piece by piece. Her life was completely destroyed very deliberately, wasn't it? Yeah, by, by everybody. I mean, so, so her tweet was, it was just before she had, you know, she had like, no, she had 170 Twitter followers. And while she was, just before she got on a plane to, to Cape Town, she tweeted a joke, which on the surface sounded appalling. But I, I would argue it doesn't take you long to work out that the joke was, in, was bad, but it was intended to be a kind of self-reflexive liberal joke mocking her own privilege. And, and the joke yeah. was... Yeah, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Um, so, you know, the joke was her trying to make fun of her own ignorance in a, in a way that, you know, South Park does and Andy Newman does. And, you know, but everybody got her, everybody from Donald Trump through to, you know, misogynistic trolls, through to social justice people, through to hipsters, you know, everybody mm. invented to destroy her while she was asleep on a plane. Um, so that was the, you know, that was kind of the, the nadir, I'd say. Um, but now, and now what's happening is, is, you know, you've got, you know, unquestionably positive shaming campaigns on social media, like all of the sexual predator stuff. And I think Twitter's maybe growing up a, a bit. Would, would, you, would you say it's like less likely that a type thing would happen now? I think so. Well, I think that the people, the nice people from that list you listed, because obviously the misogynistic trolls are still going to be misogynistic trolls, but maybe some of the hipsters and the more liberal people are more aware of it as an issue. And I think your book genuinely had a role to play in that. I think it did too. And, I, and, and at the same time as my book came, uh, Monica Lewinsky's TED Talk, and it had, and I think both of them had the same attitude. And the attitude was, we, we, we don't want to be kind of tribal about this. We don't want to say... It's okay when the left destroys the right. 
but it's not okay when the right destroys the left, which is what a lot of people think. And a lot, you know, a lot of people on the right think it's, you know, the alt-right people think it's absolutely fine for them to attack people on the left, but it's outrageous when the opposite happens. And, and a lot of people on the left feel the same way. But what I really like about Monica Lewinsky is that she, she basically says, you know, we should, we should think about it all. It's like, it's all bad. Um, and so my book and her book came out at the same time, based, and, and her TED Talk came out at the same time, kind of saying the same thing. And it all now seems kind of slightly prophetic, given the American political situation. Yeah, I mean, I'm convinced that, that this is, you know, a, a major reason why Trump is president. Um, the internet as a whole? or Yeah, the sort of the, the pollution of the waters. And I, and I think everybody polluted the waters, left and right. You know, we all became extreme polemicists. And of course, you know, from, from those polluted waters will emerge, you know, a kind of mutant fish like Trump. It's, it's not the only reason, though. I mean, you know, some like anti-centrists would say Obama's centrism, you know, failed a lot of people in America. And, you know, that's part of the reason why Trump emerged. So it's not just, I think, the kind of extremities of the Internet. But, but I'd say that they certainly contribute. It feels like that's kind of becoming a bit of a theme in some of your work, I suppose, that the Internet is changing things very rapidly and with unexpected and sometimes uncontrolled results. Like the butterfly effect? Yes. So, so I just so I spent like the last year, mainly partly because the the book you say being publicly shamed was like such a kind of stressful experience, both to write and also to bring out. I wanted to do something a little bit more fun, and so I spent the last year and a half uh, hanging out with my producer Lena on on porn sets in the San Fernando Valley, looking at the consequences of um, the tech takeover of the porn industry. And it does feel like a continuation, I think, of some of the themes of, of Shamed, because it's about, you know, it's about how people don't think about the consequences of what they do on the internet. And then, so I want to show people the consequences. Um, and in The Butterfly Effect, it's it's the fact that, you know, um, hundreds of millions of people watch their porn for free on Pornhub, which is a kind of massive depository of pirated content. So I wanted to look at the kind of myriad. I wanted to do this really sort of, I wanted to have an adventure into the consequences of that. And where would it take you? Like if you traced consequence through to consequence, where would you end up? And we end up in some, you know, poor, you know, sort of amazing, funny, sad, poignant places. And it's all about consequences. Yeah, I haven't quite got to the end of it yet, so don't give me any spoilers. But um, Are you enjoying it? Really enjoying it, really enjoying it. I really like it. I loved making it and and I love the results. You know, I, I, I think we did a really good job. It's really human. Like if, I, if anyone's listening and thinking, mm, not really that interested in porn, like still give it a listen, I would say. Uh, like really, it's kind of a lot about humans and about internet marketing and digital economics, which would not have sounded nearly as clickable. So I see why you didn't run with that as the title. We talk, you know, like I took, I took the, the, the sex out of it. There's like, there's very little sex in, in the show because I kind of thought if you eradicate you know anything sexually graphic you can fill that empty space with all this other stuff and which is mainly you know people like humans being being cruel to each other but also being really kind of kind to each other it's a very kind of heartfelt humanistic story I think it works really well as a podcast as well because we get to hear those stories so many of them firsthand but I wondered like why you went down the podcast route again it's that feeling of like you're one of the forerunners for embracing the new technology because it could have been a book I guess or like a syndicated column at least yeah I've always kind of had the rule that I want to make 
I only want to work for people who I myself am a consumer of. And I've had that role like my whole life, like um, right from the, from the very earliest days of my career. I thought I'd love to work for Channel 4 because I watch Channel 4 and I'd love to write for The Guardian because I read The Guardian and Time Out magazine. And, and I always like have this rule that like, you know, if I like them, they're more likely to like me. And the last few years I've noticed, you know, that I, I kind of consume more podcasts and audiobooks than pretty much anything else. Um, mm. Like my, my hobby is like being fit. So I go for like incredibly long walks and hikes and I go running. And, and so I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I don't like sitting still. So podcasts and audiobooks are perfect. And, and then I began to notice, actually, with So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I noticed that I was selling more audiobooks than I was selling hardcovers. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I think it's for two reasons. I think partly because I'm, I'm a guest. I've been a guest on podcasts a lot over the years. So mm-hmm. and including like all the big ones like Joe Rogan and Mark Maron and, and uh, Guys We Fucked. Uh, and so the ones that kind of, you know, lots and lots of people listen to. So I think a lot of people were kind of used to hearing my voice. Oh, and This American Life yeah, as well. Yeah, Yeah. And, and then the other reason I thought is because I think a lot of other people feel the same way I do, that it's, it's you know, it's better to listen to audiobooks than it is to read books because it means you, you can multitask you can multitask yeah you can be active and 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 actually if you've got a short attention span mm-hmm. I, I found that audiobooks hold you hold your attention longer than sitting and reading um and we're all getting an increasingly short attention span probably because of the internet and social media and everything yeah. is bite-sized i wonder has anyone done any research on whether it's making you more like, like it's making society more ADD-ish, like literally ADD-ish. We should Google that because I reckon, I'm sure it has, like people talk about being the Google generation, like the idea that you need to know straight away, you need to be able to have the information immediately. And yeah. like even on Instagram, like if I can't read a caption within about 10 seconds, I'm probably not going to finish reading it. Yeah, so that is going to, you know, change the way our brains work. Um, Have you come across any of the longer tweets? Like, I don't even finish reading longer tweets. Yeah, no, it's like, it's like what, what is this? Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to read that. <laughs> I'm not going to read characters. So maybe that fits, because I, like, podcasts feel now, it's so weird because they've been around, obviously, for so long, but podcasts suddenly now feel like, the early days of blogging or the early days of Instagram, you know, that the early days of Twitter, that kind of social media that suddenly got a spark of momentum. And it's like most of my conversions now for my courses or for customers or whatever come through my podcast instead of all my other channels, which is really strange to me. Yes, I, I think it's, it's you know, I mean, I love podcasting in, in every in every way. I, I love the fact that it, I mean, I love these kind of long-form conversations. I, I wouldn't want to make podcasts that are long-form conversations. I don't think I, that plays to my strengths as much as having these kind of intricate adventures, but but I love listening to them. And and I love the, the, the kind of experiments in structure that people do. I mean, I think The Butterfly Effect, my show, is very experimental in, in its structure. And... You know, S Town, you could say the same. So I love the fact that it's, that, that the kind of, there's all these limitless possibilities. And also, more and more people are just getting their nonfiction from, from podcasts um, more than books. And, but my problem is that, is that I'm quite, like the work I do is really time intensive. And so, was, you know, for the Butterfly Effect, I was back and forth to Los Angeles, you know, for a year on the plane from, from New York. I live in New York. So it's not, it wasn't like insanely expensive, but it, but it wasn't cheap. And, and um, that really cuts down the number of people who could afford, who could afford me, basically to two. Like the only people who could afford me doing the kind of stories I want to do 
of This American Life and Audible. And, and Audible, you know, luckily came along and said they were interested. Because I was, I was wondering about that, like how you make it financially viable because podcasts are a free medium. But actually with the way print is going, I suppose that embracing kind of the new, the new forms is important as well. So I think for Audible to make its money back from, from me, they just need to get a certain number of people, maybe, I don't know, 50,000 people to, to subscribe. Right, of course. Yeah, and then, and you know what, they probably don't even need to subscribe for that long. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm a monthly subscriber to Audible, but I think if they get, you know, you know I don't know, 20,000, 30,000 people to subscribe and to keep subscribing, that... And then it pays uh, it for itself. Yeah, it pays for itself, exactly. And of course, all of your books are on Audible. So once people are hooked, they're going to want to go and listen to your back catalogue, which they've got. Exactly. So it's kind of perfect. Um, and the fact that you, you narrate your own audiobooks, I think, is important as well, having listened to people who don't read their own books. Yeah, it's, I really don't like listening to audiobooks when they're not read by the author, especially for person narratives. I mean, like, what is, um, you know, it's kind of nuts. Um, I tried to listen to, so I downloaded your uh, The Men That Stare at Goats, but with the American right. narrator, just, did, just didn't work. It was so strange. And, you know, I, I fought that. And then as soon as the, the rights, um, as soon as the rights came back to us, I, I then read it, The Men That Stare at Goats. And so now I've done every one of my audiobooks. Do you know what I hate? I hate it when men read the audiobooks but when they're doing like women's voices, and they, they all do it. It's like I'm listening to this audiobook called Before the Fall, which is a Noah Hawley. Um, he's the guy who's the showrunner on Fargo. It's like a sort of girl on the train type thing. And the guy who, who's reading the audiobook does that. It's like every time he does a woman's voice, he like makes it a little bit higher and a little bit more airy. It just drives me crazy. Do you have a director? Like, how does it work? Is there someone sat there? Maybe they're telling them to do it. Um, I, I wonder. I, you, you, there is someone sat there. But they tend really not to get involved that much. Um, I'm not with some really good, good people. But they don't. But but with me, they haven't got involved that much. I just I just do it. Maybe, maybe I just don't need that much directing when it comes to that. So I guess kind of like that's what I mean when I say I think you're an early adopter, and maybe you don't even see it about yourself. But the fact that you were recognizing that it's a problem if you don't narrate your own audiobooks, and that you're already listening to the technology, and so podcasts had your interest like I, I think there's a lot of people still working just in print who are gonna struggle come the digital revolution whenever that happens if it's already happened because mm. they're kind of not necessarily embracing all these new technologies yet yeah is it you does it all come from you or have you just got someone giving you good advice no it pretty much all comes to me in fact with with the butterfly effect I kind of had to convince um I mean not that they needed much convincing but but I was the one who kind of said to my agent like I want to, I want to do this. Um, yeah, no, it pretty much all, pretty much all comes from me. I, um, yeah, it's a good thing. It's exciting. It's interesting to see where it's going to go next. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I, I definitely feel like podcasts and audiobooks are, are definitely for nonfiction. They're like they're the future. One thing you kind of touched on when you were talking about your stories and your adventures is that you end up doing a lot of traveling and going on all these sort of random adventures. But you've also talked a bit about living with anxiety, which um, I can certainly relate to. I think lots of people listening can relate to. And I'm always quite struck by the fact that that doesn't get in your way, that you still like go and board the plane and go and, you know, go into the ISIS training camp or yes. whatever it is. How How is that done? Like, is this, 
Is that because you're overcoming your anxiety or is it just your work anxiety is more powerful and forces you to do it? It's that. In fact, funnily enough, um, <laughs> I was thinking as you, as you were asking that question, I was remembering something that, that Louis Theroux said. He was asked that question and, and his answer was not getting the story is more anxiety inducing than, you know, than right. being with Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I think. I think, yeah, I think that is the answer. It's like... Um, and, and one time I asked Randy Newman, I interviewed Randy Newman, and I, I said to him, like, why, you know, why do you do it? Why do you write all those songs? And he said, it's how I judge myself and how I feel better. And the fact is, I mean, that's exactly the same to me. I mean, the fact is, um, you know, and this is going to sound slightly pitiable, but it's just the truth. Like, you know, most of my self-worth is wrapped up in whether my work is, is any good or not. So, you know, that that's why I do it. You know, I really don't love the travelling. I, I I really hate losing sleep. Like, I, I hate um, having to get up at five in the morning to get a plane. Like, I hate it. You know, and I'm so jangly all day. And, and um, But, you know, I kind of have to do it because, because that's sort of where my self-worth lies. That's interesting. We talk a lot about uh, self-worth and self-belief on this podcast and the dangers of outsourcing it that way, which I guess is what you kind of encountered when people were being so negative to you on Twitter. Mm. And it was almost like a judgment on your work, except you can look back now and see that it wasn't because they hadn't read it. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, I had to remind myself that this wasn't personal. This wasn't about me. It was about their idea of of me as a kind of representative of some kind of ideology, which wasn't even true. I mean, you know, I I, I was like them. One thing that's really true um, whether people like it or not, is that when, if you're on the left, and I'm not the only person to have said this, and it's really true, like if you're on the left like I am, and you're suddenly, you suddenly become the focus of like far right-wing lunatics who all attack you, it doesn't hurt as much as when your, old, your own people attack you. Yeah, if Nazis start going for me, you know, you just think, well, you know, fuck them, the Nazis. They've already proven their judgment to be questionable. So, But when your own people, you know, your fellow liberals go after you, it, it, it hurts bad. And that's kind of what happened to me when change came. Okay, I can see that. And especially if you're saying that, like, the reception for your work is kind of a place where you get validation, at least, from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And do you ever, like, chase a story and then get months in and then suddenly just lose confidence that it's going anywhere, that it's any good? Yes. That does that does happen. I um, kind of most notably, I was in about two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. I wanted to write a, a kind of what I was imagining to be a kind of men who stare at goats of the credit card industry. So these kind of weird secret tricks that credit card companies, you know, use to to enslave us. Um, and I couldn't do it mainly because the people I, I was meeting with were just kind of boring they were like boring <laughs> mathematicians and I say in the psychopath test if you want to get away with wielding true malevolent power be boring because journalists are less likely to want to write about you <laughs> <laughs> um so I, I abandoned the book for that reason and my, and my American publisher constantly reminds me that if I hadn't abandoned the book it would have come out just when the credit crunch happened and I would have oh. been like the expert on that but but you know but you know what instead I wrote the psychopath test and that was it that was a big yeah, and was probably more interesting then by the side of it. Yeah, I, I still think it's funny. There's a, a lot of the stuff I was trying to write back then is coming alive now because a lot of it was about data people and list brokers trying to work out who we should blast. Basically, like, 
back then, the perfect person to blast with pre-approved loans were poorly educated home loan, um, homeowners because because they're homeowners, then you could seize their houses if they default on the loans. And because they're poorly educated, they're less likely to read the small print. I mean, it was a kind of hideously, you know, chilly, chilling way to sort of work out who to send credit card junk mail to. Like exploiting people's, yeah, weaknesses. And the way they did it was through through their postcodes. Because if you live in this particular postcode, that means you're going to drink more vodka. Or this is this was like the way they were working this stuff out. Anyway, but I abandoned that. And that still happens. I kind of abandon stories quite often. Weapons of mass deduction. That's what you should have called it. Whoa. The working title was We Are In Your Debt. But yours is better. <laughs> well, we better wrap it up then because you've got to get going. But where can people find you? What's coming up next? Are you doing another psychopath tour in the UK, did I see? Yeah, I'm doing, a, I'm doing one more psychopath tour. Starting this this week, depending on when you're going to put this podcast out, it's all pretty much sold out except for Coventry, the Warwick Arts Centre in Coventry, Icarus, like I flew too close to the sun thinking of fill the 2,000 seat venue. In Coventry. <laughs> yeah, in Coventry. It's, it's doing fine. It's like, it's not embarrassing, but there are seats left. Uh, otherwise, it's all pretty much sold out. Liverpool, Newcastle, Brighton, Cardiff, London. Um, and then people can catch up on Audible or on any podcast app with The Butterfly Effect, right? Yep, The Butterfly Effect has just been released in its entirety um, on all the podcast apps. And then other than that, um, I wrote this, I co-wrote this movie this year called Okja. Yeah, we didn't even get onto that, yeah. No, but, no, but I'm really proud of it. And as a result, I've been offered a couple of films to write, so I'm, I'm writing a science fiction film at the moment. Oh, exciting. Yeah, really. I mean, it's hard, especially both the two films that I wrote, Frank and Oakja, I, I co-wrote with people. So um, this is the first one I've written completely alone, so it's slightly nerve-wracking. But, um, you know, I'm getting there, I think, slowly with it. Oh, well, we'll look forward to seeing it. And, of course, everyone can find you on Twitter to be nice to you and on Instagram to be even nicer. Yeah, totally. I'm John Ronson on both of those things with no H so then John had to dash for dinner. I should mention that he did ask me how long I wanted to talk for and I felt shy and said far too short a time because hello self-doubt. So that one is all on me and not on him at all. But I will link to all of his work and his social media accounts that we mention in the show notes at meandorla.co.uk forward slash podcast 32 because this is episode 32. And I implore you with my whole heart that if you haven't already, do go and give him a follow. He's at John Ronson on Twitter and on Instagram. Say hello, tell him that you heard him here on Hashtag Authentic and then go and dig into his back catalogue of work. Like his tweets, his books, his Instagram captions, they all make me laugh out loud. He's funny, he's wise and he is definitely one of us, whatever we all are. So you can tweet both of us or at us on Instagram and keep this week's conversation going. That's always the best part of any podcast for me. And tell him what an excellent idea you think it was that he came on my podcast. Nudge, wink. (laughs) I will see you next week and I hope you have a great time until then.